0: Hi, welcome to Infinite Leaders Live. I'm Lewis Keens. Our Why is simple to be better educators and to be better humans. We want to support people regardless of their role, rank or responsibility to be infinite learners and to listen, learn and share everything they hear on this podcast and our other avenues with colleagues and friends. I'm joined as ever by my good pal, Alan. How are you doing, Alan?
1: Yeah, good, Lewis. Thank you. And really enjoyed the shows we've done recently. And and I really hope our listeners have learned as much as what I have. And we'll continue to focus on the things you don't get taught at university or on any courses, real-life lessons from real-life people with real-life experience.
0: And we still don't have any posh jingles and we record live. So we're as raw as we were for episode one. We love your feedback and we practice what we preach. So please do get in touch. If you have anything positive or anything constructive to say on how we can improve our podcast, we fully believe in what we do uh, and and we really enjoy it. We're privileged to be in a position to speak to such fantastic people. Uh, Please join us uh, on social media, Instagram, YouTube and Twitter. You'll find us on as well as theinfinitelearners.com and all our podcasts are on podcast platforms wherever you listen to them. So listen, learn and share and let's dive straight in, Al.
1: Yeah, get your pens and papers ready. There's going to be some gems of wisdom today. Uh, Vinita Upal has been an international educator for 30 years and is currently the director of the British School New Delhi. She's the proud recipient of the Order of the British Empire, the OBE, in recognition of her services to British education in an international context, becoming the only Indian serving principal to receive this honour in 2014. Under her leadership, the British School New Delhi has won multiple prestigious awards, including the top British International School of the Year in 2018. Benita is also the recipient of the Women Achiever of the Year Award in 2009, and she's a trainer in classroom pedagogy and leadership as presented at a number of international forums. Benita encourages innovation, trusts in the power of collaboration and leads with integrity and compassion. To serve to make a positive difference is a mantra and I'm sure we'll be talking about that today. So welcome to the show, Benita, and tell us a little bit about why you wanted to be a teacher. And, and, and your journey to becoming the director of the British School in New Delhi. Um,
2: thank you, Alan, and thank you, Lewis. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I never started out in my career intending to become a teacher. And uh, it happened by accident. And um, I was just uh, almost seconded by my friend's mother who ran a, a school that was delivering the national curriculum. And I was actually waiting to sit for my civil service exam. And she says, well, you're not doing anything. Why don't you just come in and teach? And I said, I, I don't want to be a teacher. I'm going to be a civil servant. And she says, okay, so why are you wasting your time? Your classes are not happening. Just come in. You, I just finished my postgraduate degree at that time. And she says, well, you, you know, you come. I'm short of an English teacher. I said, but I'm a postgraduate in history. I, English is not my subject. And but the lady, as you can understand, was extremely persuasive. And there I was teaching a group of grade eight students and uh, i know for an educator it's bad to use the word addicted but within 3 months i was hooked and addicted and i realized and i just just so enjoyed being in the classroom i taught for 2 years without a teaching degree uh, this is about this is about more than 35 years ago and then i quit i didn't even sit the civil services exam i quit the school i went back into regular university and did uh, a a formal teacher training program. And uh, like I said, I was hooked for life as a teacher and um, as a leader. And when did I, There is my leadership journey, um, Alan's being very fluid, very organic. So there was no Eureka moment or there was no action plan with a milestone that okay, by age this, I will do this and by age this, I will do that. But even as a teacher, I, I saw myself as a leader. And what, what, did, what did that mean for me at, when I was a young teacher? It meant that I wanted to do things that I enjoyed doing. I wanted to give whatever I was doing my 100%. I wanted to make things right, you know, I wanted to, to make things better, I wanted to solve problems, right? And uh, so I started doing, taking on responsibility, especially if it was something that people wouldn't pivot to naturally you would find Vineetha Opal running to do that. And uh, I remember a colleague very early in my career asked me, and she said, you know, I was planning this huge interschool event, which meant I didn't have a life. So I was like literally living in school. And um, we didn't have the infrastructure we had today, but I was like at it 24-7. And she just came to me and she says, why are you doing this? It's not your job. There's no title. You're not going to get any extra money or any brownie points. Why are you doing it? And it was a very honest, serious question from a very dear colleague. And my answer then, Alan, and my answer today would be the same, that I'm enjoying it, I'm learning, and what I learn will be mine. So I did it for the love of learning. And then when I started assuming leadership roles and responsibilities that were kind of, a lot of it was I was goaded by my colleagues to do it, uh, to be honest, or by my superiors who felt, Maybe I had something that they were seeing in me which I wasn't seeing, and um, yeah, I ended up uh, even when I was coming into for to apply for the role of the director, uh, my predecessor said to me, "You know I'm not renewing my contract, and I looked at him i said that's that's really sad you you know because you you still have so much here to do." He said, "No, I want you to apply so I said, no 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 no, I'm not ready I love what I'm doing right now, and more because I think I believed that I wasn't ready and um, He just said one thing to me and I was stunned. He says, he says, you know, you really need to do this because you're already doing a great part of the job. And he says, I want you to apply just to raise the bar of the interview. And in this very matter of fact, I was stunned by this compliment. I said, so so what does that mean? And he, I think at that point, Alan, gave me one of the most precious pieces of advice anybody's ever given me. And he said, you know, in life, you'll go through people who will have faith in you, who will doubt your judgment, doubt your leadership, he says, do me a favor. Don't add yourself to that list of doubters. And that has somehow stayed in my head. And I say that to a lot of young leaders that don't doubt yourself. You know, raise the bar for yourself and you'll get to it. So that's the journey in a nutshell.
0: I love the idea, love that idea. Of, of, of why would you doubt yourself if, if there are other people that are already doubting you? Why would yeah. you do that to yourself?
2: Right, and yeah, pr- really precious words from a very intelligent man. Yeah.
0: yeah, What kind of advice would you give to people that are in that situation where they, they do feel that self-doubt and they do question whether they're capable of doing things?
2: Uh, and, it, and obviously now when you're mentoring and coaching young leaders, and a lot of them say, but, but do you really think I'm ready to do this? And my usual advice to them is that if you don't try, you'll never know. And, you know, if this role requires these skill sets and me as somebody who's watched you work has seen you, has seen you have, that you have those skills, you have the ability, you have the potential. So what are you afraid of? Don't be afraid of making a mistake. Don't be afraid of failure because you have a circle of support around you. So if you don't try, how will you ever raise the bar for yourself?
1: Yeah.
2: And, and usually what I've seen, whether it's with students in a classroom or with colleagues, they they not they, they don't just raise the bar, they go far beyond it. Because you are supporting them and challenging them at the same time. Showing them a mirror which they can't see, which I couldn't see at one time. And uh, so I w- what I try to do Lewis for colleagues around me is my leadership journey was more by accident because people kept saying, do this. One of my predecessors called me the most reluctant principal he'd ever met. And it wasn't that my leadership was reluctant. It was, I just said, yeah, because, one of the things I say to young leaders is, don't get obsessed with roles and titles. You can define a role, you can be a class teacher, and you can be flying so high that everybody knows you and everybody respects you. So don't get obsessed with the title or the designation, look at the role. And your role is to make a difference, a positive difference to those around you. So when you don't get obsessed with that title and just learn and do what you're doing, it, it really works out in the end.
0: I love that idea of you you don't need a title to be a leader and also what you talked about there of if you try, you might, if you don't try, you'll never know.
2: You'll Um, never
0: know. I think that's that's really, really powerful. And it it gives us certainly a direction to go in, in terms of taking a risk and and having a go at these different things. So so tell us a little bit about how you felt when you went into those situations where, you know, you weren't convinced that you were ready, but you were going to give it a go. You were going to try and you might mm. succeed. What, what, what difficulties did you face as you started those
2: journeys? Uh, a couple and a very interesting one was when I was applying for the Director's role because I was the only internal candidate and it, CIS had been hired as the recruiting agency. And, uh, and I was, like I said, in doubt, should I, should I not, to be or not to be kind of d- dilemma. And when I was speaking with the recruiter and he said, okay, my first question, you're an internal candidate, if you don't win, are you prepared for that? And um, I said, yeah. He says, okay, it's easy to say, but it's a loss of face, etc. And what I said to him is something I really believe in. And I said, see, as a, as a professional, I'm a very secure individual. I'm very confident of what I do as a professional. And I understand. I know enough about educational leadership and uh, the functioning of an international school that there are many factors that go into hiring the person for the top job. So I know that if somebody brings that combination better than I can, that person will get it. And I will work equally happily with that person. And he was quite taken aback. He says, you know, I don't usually see people because I mean, people were afraid that if she didn't get the job, will she leave? And that didn't even cross my mind. Because for me, I was just gonna continue doing what I, what I love doing. And I think it's a privilege to get paid for what you love doing. Many people are stuck in jobs they don't enjoy. So,
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And, and Alan and I talk about this quite often. And, and it sounds like what you're suggesting there is that sometimes there's a lot of ego attached to, yeah. to going into a, certainly an internal sort of opportunity. Yeah. And and what that, that person there from CIS was maybe asking you is, would do you have...
2: Absolutely. Do you have
0: the ego that that you can leave to one side and and take the best hit for the school, or or is your ego going to drive your decision making if somebody else comes
2: in above you? Right. You know, uh, I was asked that, would you like to meet the other candidates? I said, absolutely. I said, because if if I get selected, okay, I've met three other great professionals. If I don't get selected as the secondary principal, I'll be working with the director. So of course, but of course that didn't happen. That wasn't part of the process. And I think, to me, to be an educator, I think there is no role for ego, Lewis. There is there is role for in there is a centric role for integrity, for self respect. There is an integral role for uh, compassion, passion. Where does ego come into this? I mean, humility. If there is no humility in you as a human being, how on earth? Are you going to train and coach and mentor and lead young people who, in our current 21st century world, there is such a focus on I, me, and myself, individualism has been the hallmark of the 20th century. And today we are saying it's actually collaboration. People have to learn to work with each other. Mm -hmm. And if, if ego is going to get in the way, and if you want to do the best, what's in the best interest of the children in your care, and you allow ego to get in the way. I'm sorry, you should really do another job.
0: I completely agree. Um, and, and I love, uh, we talk about this phrase a lot but it, and you touched on it there. It's not about who's right. It's about what's right.
2: And, was, and, and Yeah, what's right and not who because you have to depersonalize things. It's always an issue. And I always believe, um, Lewis, that it's, it's very often not what is said, but how it is said. Hmm. That you know, takes a situation from being a mild disagreement to a potential crisis. And there there should be no ego. And I've been in situations, recently I've been in a situation where I've, I remember I was a principal at the time and there was this parent who was really angry about some school bus. The bus had left the child in school or something had happened. And everybody was knotted around it or she was threatening to launch a grievance and, oh, she was going to, you know, take it to the board. I just picked up the phone, got her phone number, and I said, "Hi, so and so, this is Mrs. Opal, and uh, I just wanted to have a chat. I believe I believe there's something that's upset you. Can I help?" And that was it. That's all that they wanted, and she couldn't stop talking about the fact that you know the principal called me herself, mm-hmm. because I, to me, it wasn't. Oh my God, I'm the principal. I'm sitting on this high pedestal. No, you're not. You're a human being. And the and the most important thing is that your position is a transient one, right? You are not holding that chair. You're not you're not sitting on that chair. You're not glued to that seat forever, right? So yeah. if you believe that you're, you are given a responsibility, like Michael Fullan says, there is a moral purpose to that responsibility. You know, give it your best. But remember, you are here to plan your own demise.
0: Yeah, uh, t- tell us a bit more about that. What, what do you mean by that? You know, you're only so, keeping the seat warm, really.
2: Right, because see, I, I firmly, the, the reason why I'm probably one of the most non-hierarchic people I know, once it's to, do, it's to do with my upbringing, my parents kept me very grounded, very humble, and you know, and, um, but I think you have to understand that there is a certain power equation that happens when you assume an office you don't see yourself in that light but there are others who see you in that light and it's up to you uh, to not get people to disrespect the office but but to break that but to break that wall you're not a super, superhuman and you're in most international schools headships principalships any position of leadership is transient so once you understand that you have to make it better than when you got it. So what is leadership? Leadership is about influence, it's a social process. It's about influencing people to become better because of your presence and ensuring that even in your absence, that remains, right? So it's, it's about building, I mean, succession planning is something most leaders don't want to think about. They, they almost think it is sacrilegious. That you know, as if as if you, I, well, are you telling me I won't have the job anymore? But you have to plan because if you are, if you want, if you are committed to what you're doing and you want it to be good and sustained, you have to plan for your own figurative demise. You have to.
0: That it's, that that links in with um, the the James Kerr sort of approach in legacy, doesn't it? About right, the all Blacks, All you're doing is looking after the jersey.
2: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's what you're doing. You're, you're I, that
1: custodian. Yeah. Sorry, Alan. You were saying something. No, I I, I fully agree with everything you said, and it it, it really hits home of when sort of Louis and myself and and Simon and, and Rebecca. We all left BSM, and we were looking at that succession planning for a long time, and
2: right
1: the recruitment that that we tried to do was very values driven, and it seems that you 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 probably have a similar sort of vein of that. We don't necessarily look for. The absolute outstanding talent. We look for a set of character values and look to mould them. Could you tell us a little bit about your recruitment at, at the British School Delhi? Uh,
2: You've hit the nail on the head. Um, I uh, you'll be surprised to know I'm sure a lot of my colleagues do that. But um, every appointment to the school, I always meet the candidate. Whether it's uh, we are hiring uh, security personnel, a security executive. A classroom teacher, middle-level leader, the final interaction I will always be a part of. And what do I look for? I, like you said, I'm not just, I mean, CVs look great on paper, but when the person walks through the door, what are you looking for? The, will this person share your values? Will this person be somebody who will say, yes, I will give it my all to the students in my care? Will this person be a team player? Will this person be willing to learn? Will this person actually become a part of a team that everybody wants as in their team, right? And it's not just your credentials on your CV, but uh, what is what is your vision? What is your philosophy? Who are you as a teacher? And what do you think is important to you as a teacher are some of the questions I ask. And therein lies the answer, right? And yeah. it's, it's, I mean, I've, I've got your degrees, I've got all the prizes you won and the awards you won that's all very well but that's a given right but that's a given i mean you i would want you to be a strong practitioner in the classroom but are you going to be a collaborator are you going to be somebody who's going to uh, you know know when to stand up and speak and know when to sit down and listen are you are you going to be that person in my team and somebody who will work and gel with the team and understand and, and this is not about a group thing alan it's not about you want people who are just like yourself but you want people who will bring in that voice of dissent, who will have the passion and the intellect to bring in that deferring opinion. But the one thing I am, I think my, what I ha- I will hang on to is respect. And do that with respect, defer, have a difference of opinion, have an argument, thrash out an issue, but do it exhibiting respect. Because to me, that is very, very important. And especially do in an international school, because you are appreciating. I mean, you're training your children to appreciate multiple perspectives. And if you can't do that in your own boardroom or in your own meeting room, you, 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 it's, it's really worthless then, isn't it? It's pointless.
0: You, you talked a lot there about, about the different values that you're looking for. And you mentioned within it, you know, what, what's the teacher's philosophy or vision? And I want to come back to, um, to something Alan said in the introduction. I think it was to serve, to make a positive yes. difference. It is your personal mantra. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? It's beautifully simple.
2: Yeah, it is because I, I believe my role, and I hope I don't come across as a glib politician when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I have always believed that to lead is to serve. And you are doing this because I believe schools especially And uh, we've had Sir John Jones say that millions of times that 99% of your success is about positive relationships and personal connections. So schools more than any other industry are about people and valuing those people and making sure that whether it's a student, whether it's a member of your support team, whether it's your teacher, that your, your presence, your interaction is enabling them to become the best versions of themselves. And that is going to have a cascading impact on the whole community. So I think leadership is a lot about service. It's about having the resilience of a rock actually at times because we all know leaders have to weather some very difficult storms, uh, difficult terrains. So if you are in this for self-preservation, if it is about, I have to save my job, I have to save face, rather than I have to do what is right and what is good, then as I say, guys, find another job. Don't be in <laughs> education, don't. Because if if that is not what is driving you, that yes, you will never give up on a child who's not making it, you will never give up on a member of staff who's not getting it right. That to me is the passion and the the energy that, that drives excellent schools. Not infrastructure, not high tech systems, not gizmos, it's that people bit that drives it.
1: Yeah. I see that your passion for people is, is quite evident in the way you speak. And I absolutely love that. T- tell, us, tell us about a challenging period you've had as a leader then, Venita, where it, it's really tested those values.
2: Okay. I think uh, the most obvious one is the current one, uh, yeah. which is obviously, obviously the pandemic. And one for which there was no um, training manual. There was no preparation. Yes, as a leader, you anticipate, you show foresight, you do all of that, you prepare, you keep children safe, health and safety is important. But through these last seven months, what's been critical for me, and it's been obviously a very challenging period for everybody, I'm not, I'm not, the, I'm not the only one. I mean, the COVID-19 hasn't left anybody unscathed. But I think what I hung on to were a couple of things. One was that I was going to, in terms of health and safety, I anchored myself to principles, Alan, rather than events and structures.
1: Okay.
2: So where it was the safety of the communities, the children, the parents, the staff, there was one anchor and that was the principle of abundant caution. And for six months, fingers crossed, it's kept our campus COVID free. If it meant excessive protocols, if it meant doing things, that people didn't quite agree to, if it meant, and, and remember, I started doing this from the 24th of Jan, right, COVID was announced on the 21st of Jan, and I at our school at TBS, we started putting in protocols from the 24th of Jan. So we were isolating, putting families in self-isolation if they had traveled, Chinese New Year, et cetera. The government wasn't isolating people, we were at the British school. We were canceling, we canceled Phobosia events, the primary music festival in February, I, they said, no, but why you? I said, I'm telling you, this is not going away. Abundant caution, doesn't matter. It's an event that won't happen. It's an event we are looking forward to. We'll do it again. So one was that, the abundant caution bit for health and safety. The other anchor was the people. And I knew that things had turned topsy-turvy for staff. Many of them had families which were stuck overseas. They, teachers are not trained to teach online. They're trained... You know, make eye contact, make eye contact. You know, you can see the magic, you can weave the magic in the classroom. Suddenly the classroom had changed. You weren't only teaching children, you were teaching grandparents, parents, uncles, aunts, cousins, Everybody sitting in the room, right, and that's daunting, that's overwhelming. How, so my second anchor was that whatever I do, my teachers are looking after the children in their care. It's up to me and my leadership team to look after the teachers. So we reached out. We put in well-being programs, virtual yoga, uh, you know, counseling sessions. We we did it all. We did it all. So that was the second bit. The third bit, of course, was reassurance. And how do you reassure a community about a problem that even you had very little insight on? So communication. We really went to the extreme. More. I mean more was less. So we kind of have traversed this journey. And the important thing was communicating our rationale. We kept talking, we kept communicating because authentic leadership, Alan, is not built through one dramatic event. It's built through the small things you do on a daily basis, behind the scenes work. So you're seen as a credible, authentic leader to the extent that, I mean, up until now, in the last seven months of the pandemic, we haven't taken a proposal to the board that's been turned down. Because there is that trust, there is that mutual trust that yes, you're coming to us because we trust your judgment. And you've earned that trust, not just today when the pandemic hit, but you had built on that over the last few years. So this of course is a challenging period like none other that one is experiencing. Of course there have been others. Of course there have been others. Do I have time to talk about an episode that happened? Or am i running out of time.
0: You carry no, on. You, you carry, carry on, Vanita.
2: Okay. So this is um, this is uh, four. I think four years back. This is when there was that tragic shooting of um, in Peshawar in Pakistan. Remember, school kids were gunned down, and uh, so obviously, you know, there was heightened security everywhere. And we are in the heart of diplomatic Delhi. So we are the British school across the road is the American school, right? So we obviously, you know, soft targets in that sense. I had gone for a meeting outside. I come back and I'm, I met with my security manager at the gate and my security guy is not letting me go in. I said, you kind of batty, I've showed him my badge. It's me, hello, it's me, I need to be in. <laughs> and uh, you know, I kind of, I'm the director, Have they the chain guard, what's happened? I'm not being let back into my own school. And my security manager immediately comes out and she says, I was waiting, I was trying to get in touch with you. Uh, we've, refu- we've received a call. We were still a construction site, remember? Half the campus was built, Half was a construction site. And um, our receptionist received a call of an armed intruder on campus. He said, I'm sitting in this bathroom, I've got an AK-47, and I'm going to gun you guys down. Okay, and uh, so I said, okay, have you, so literally, I mean, I've just come back from a meeting with the high commissioner. And I said, okay, she said, I said, have you locked down the campus? She says no, this happened three minutes ago. I said, three minutes too late, locked on the campus. So we went into lockdown mode. We obviously did our own search. This informed the cops, informed the anti, anti, anti-terrorist squad, the anti-bomb squad, informed all of them. Now the problem that occurred at that time, it was pick up time for our nursery kids, Ooh. right? And uh, so the parents are coming. We have a huge courtyard in the front okay it's 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 just as soon as you enter the school and the security manager saying no we'll keep the parents out we won't let them in i said are you batty i said they going to be sitting ducks because what if this guy is not alone or this woman is not alone and he's got people around and they're just going to be sitting ducks i said you get them in so now the school is in lockdown there's complete silence eerie silence in the school and the parents want to pick up their kids and say super what's happened And I was meant to be in lockdown too, right? I'm not supposed to get out till the time I get the all clear from the cops. And uh, with my hands cold and my knees trembling, I went to the coffee machine in the foyer, poured myself a cup of coffee and went out to where, there were about 80 parents standing there. I Mr. saying, what's going on, what's going on? We believe there is, I said, I'm standing here smiling. Having coffee with you guys. We're just doing a security check. It's okay. I said, if there was something to get worried about, would I be here? Obviously not. My general manager and my Miss Opal, you need to be inside. What if they kidnap you? I said, don't worry, they'll send me back with a ransom. Don't worry, nobody wants to kidnap me. Don't worry. Those two hours, it the the media arrived before the cops arrived. The the guy, the guy at the police station. Said he wouldn't send a police force. He said, You know, you have a fortress at the British school. Nobody can enter. So I said, If you tell me it's safe to release my children, I will. But I want you to tell me it's safe to release my children. The anti bomb squad arrived a couple of hours later. Okay. We had done our checks by then. We knew we were safe. But I couldn't release. I had 900 kids in my campus, along with 300 staff. How do I say it's fine to come out? I don't know that. Till the time the cop says, Yes, it's fine. So that happened at that time. I had phones from about 18 embassies, high commissioners, children, you know, everybody, because this spread like wildfire. Like I said, the media arrived before the cops arrived. But I mean, just getting through that day and what happened later, I kid you not, was some of the, I mean, now I can look back and, get a sense of almost pride at how we handle that, but not at that time. And uh, we, we then became the yardstick for other schools in Delhi, asking us what our security protocols were. How to, and one parent asked me, he said, you know my, you asked my children, the teacher said to the children, you have to bend and you can't come out from under here. My child was so traumatized. If you knew it was a hoax, why did you make my child go through this trauma? <laughs> so I said, Mr. So-and-so. I said, I'll do it again. Because I did not know at that time it was a hoax, right? Another one said, you know, I am, she was crying. She says, you know, I've got two children in there. I said, I have 900. (laughs) I've got 900. And, but that, of course, it it leads to a set of improving. But it was such a test of leadership. It was a test of everything. And uh, we came through. So that is, so I usually tell myself, guys, we manage that. Everything else pales in comparison. Yeah.
0: We'll, Vinita, we'll, we'll get through stuff.
2: We'll t- get through stuff. T- tell
0: us about the thought process there. You described it really well. You know, there's, to your mind, an intruder on campus. You've got nursery children that need to be picked up along with 900 other students and mm. and parents outside. What, what decision-making process did you go through to decide to stand there and, and, and try and calm the parents in the way that you See, did? Because that, that takes a lot of bottle, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, because one thing I knew that if, if I given to panic, and anxiety, this is this is going to go south. Even if there is no see, within about fifteen minutes, it was probably the longest fifteen minutes of my life. I knew that the security had secured the campus. By we were pretty sure that there there wasn't any, but I wasn't hundred percent sure because I hadn't obviously looked at every crevice and every cranny. But I knew that. I had one agenda. I had one agenda, Lewis. And that was to keep everybody safe. I said, no matter what. No matter what. Nobody here is getting hurt under my watch. And I'm not giving into panic. I'm not. And it's not that I wasn't scared. Boy, oh boy, was I scared. Was I scared. I was worried. Do they have people in buses? Have they, you know, put somebody in a bus? If they miss the attack here, will there be somebody on the bus? You, you can't even imagine the things that were crossing through my mind. But no. I had, my, sorry, yeah.
0: No, no, I'm just trying you, to, were, to, to unpick that. So as, as you went through the possible scenarios in, in your head of, of how do I handle this? What do I do? What was your biggest fear?
2: My biggest fear was children being held hostage. That was my biggest fear. Or somebody getting actually, you know, seriously hurt. I had a very good team with me. I had my principals, I had my deputies, my own personal assistant. I'm absolutely amazing. The the, the board chair was with me. She had come into school for the meeting and she, she stood by my side. The security manager was there. So I knew that I had people I could cascade information to and keep it safe. But you can't even, I mean, even now when I'm talking to you, I'm getting goosebumps yeah. because well, I'm reliving yeah, those moments, too. you know, that, that half an hour, 45 minutes, which was and then the phone calls it was it was that that bit was equally significant because how you communicate in a crisis is obviously very critical, mm-hmm. so again, that was lesson learned on the spot in the job
0: and what what why did you decide not to tell the parents what was really going on? What was the key driver to that
2: because the the key driver to that was i i mean our protocols say that you inform parents. Once you have the safe, you know, you inform them once it's all clear. I knew that if I told the parents, it would, not, it would not serve any purpose. It would just get them, you know, absolutely anxious. They would not be in a position to help. And it would be another, another scenario for us to deal with when the biggest thing we had to deal with was the safety of the people inside. So it was, it was that, and I was asked that question that why didn't you tell us immediately? that there was an intruder on campus, as soon as you heard. And I said, because, I mean, tell me, I mean, if if a pilot is flying an aircraft, if he knows the plane's gonna crash, is he gonna tell the passengers we're about to crash? No, he's not. What's he gonna do? He's gonna try and keep their morale up and manage the situation to the best of his ability, especially because there was an unknown. You see, if if I was sure that this had happened, yes. I mean, if there is an earthquake, there's a tremor in Delhi, I will tell the parents there was a tremor, and we did this. But I didn't know. It was literally the unknown. I didn't know why that, at that point. So it was just to keep the adults calm and then the children can be managed. Our little EYFS kids were playing hide and seek. That's what the teachers <laughs> made, made them do, which was brilliant. So yeah, I think the community just grew so much stronger and closer after that. There's and always then, a silver lining. And, and it and, so, and so sounds Vinita, like an incredible
0: sorry. decision that you made.
1: Yeah, yeah um, Venita, what did you learn about yourself during that point?
2: Uh, what I learned about myself, I can do this. Yeah. I, I won't let, I won't let my people down. I think that was a huge, huge moment for me. One thing I also learned that as a diabetic, you don't stay hungry. Cause I almost passed out <laughs> myself. <laughs> I almost passed out myself because I hadn't eaten for four or five hours. But uh, yeah, and I think, and I also realized that it's so important. I mean, your, your humane side is so critical in a crisis and that is what's going to get you through i mean the, the parents were so thankful because of the way we dealt with it
0: and that and com- comes that back to, to connection and people and it comes Absolutely. back to a little Absolutely. bit of, of social intelligence doesn't it of, of making Absolutely. a judgment right in the, the thick of the moment and you yeah. know you, you, that was obviously a, a really positive decision in the end that, that Prevented chaos and panic, and and the children were safe. I, I know we've talked a little bit about ego and, and humility, and and I wondered if you could, you could share with us maybe one of those times where you got something maybe a little bit wrong or or you made a mistake in your leadership that has really, in retrospect, helped you to develop or or in retrospect taught you a lesson that that you felt maybe was a good thing looking back.
2: I think. If I look at a leadership mistake I have made, um, give me a moment, give me a moment. I think one of the things maybe I didn't do quickly enough in one particular situation was to make a, make a clean break when I should have with a colleague, I kept I kept, because I'm a great believer in the goodness of people. And um, I continue to believe that compassion, reason, rationale would get through. Um, but I just wish maybe I had m- made the final decision a little sooner rather than later. Yeah. And uh, saved myself, my, me personally, not the school, but saved myself. A lot of personal angst if I had done that, and uh, kind of it, kind of you know, in my little rosy world where I think that know there is something good in everybody, and you you appeal to their conscience and they will listen and act according to their conscience. Uh, I think it it was a bit of naivety, it was a bit of wishful thinking, and uh, hope that the that the person would behave the way you expected them to behave. So I think that that was a lesson learned. That you know, that that so, was a lesson learned.
0: So you're talking very much about that stage that you break a relationship when with a colleague or a, or, or somebody that you you're working alongside.
2: Yeah.
0: When when maybe that should have happened earlier and it should have happened at yeah, a time where maybe you didn't invest so much time and effort, yeah, but where, where yeah. is that? Where is that tipping point Vinita? Have, have, have you been able to find that and identify that as I, you've gone through leadership?
2: I, I, I am sorry. I, my problem is that I'm like the thorn bird, right? You remember the book, the thorn bird, and it ends with, you know, the thorn bird will continue to sing with the thorn piercing her heart. Yeah. And the book ends with that line and still we do it. Because intrinsically, uh, fortunately, this is an aberration, what I experienced in the, in one instance. It's not the norm with humanity. And fortunately, the rest of my experiences tell me that, yes, your beliefs are right. Your passion is correct. That was an aberration. That was an aberration, not, not the fact that you showed faith. That wasn't a problem. Right. So I haven't really changed practice or become a cynic or lost faith no but what i've started doing is uh, putting in some protective measures some self-protective because because leaders also have to look after themselves is a very late realization
0: yeah of course can, uh, you, can I, you tell us what those measures are what 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 are those things that you you do to try and just monitor that
2: uh, i'm not good at it Let me be honest. And anybody from my school who listens to this podcast will say, liar, she doesn't do it herself. (laughs) So so one of the things, but honest to God, one of the things I'm really working on is some kind of a work-life balance for myself because I understand that my remaining of sound mind and body is critical. A lot of people depend on me. They'll, They'll depend on me for a calm judgment, for rational thinking, for well-informed decision-making. And for that, I need to save myself from a burnout. I've been warned by successive boards over the last five years, and I'm getting better at it. So I I've started doing that. that. Sorry?
1: you think a work-life balance as a teacher and as a leader in teaching, do you think it's actually possible?
2: It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It's it's an illusion.
1: <laughs> it's <Yes>. an illusion. <laughs> and when yeah.
2: I say that to people, they say. They think, oh, you really don't know what you're talking about. One of the things I've learned, one of the things I'm learning, learning that for me, it's 24 hours, seven, like it is with most leaders and teachers. It's 24. You're consumed by it. I mean, I am one of those. I have a notepad by my bedside. If I wake (laughs) up at two o'clock in the morning, I I say, yeah, I I better note that down before I forget it. Now that, that is not normal. That's not healthy. I remember At the reception ceremony when I got the OBE, I thanked my husband publicly and officially for the first and last time that he has allowed the school to be the third person in our marriage. And and, and that's a fact because you really can't stop yourself from thinking about it. But one of the things I've started doing, and Alan, you'll be happy to hear, I know you're a PE guy. I've started doing yoga. (laughs) And that is something, that is that one hour. That's mine. Yeah and for me that is such a i used to walk in the gardens the beautiful gardens called the Lodi gardens close by of course that's not happening right now so i took to yoga and i've now seen that what that it's my biggest de-stressor so that work life balance for me now means that i have an hour a day when what am i doing i'm de-stressing the minute i finish my yoga class i'm on my phone looking at the emails and messages that have come so I'd be a liar if, if I say I've got good at it. No, I'm trying. I'm trying.
0: And that's and that's a protected hour that's for you. There'll be lots of people um that work in schools and and many leaders that, that you know might say I don't have an hour. Where do you find that, Vanita?
2: I found it in lockdown. The pandemic has given me that hour. To be very honest. Mm. Because now I'm at home, I don't have an excuse to cancel my yoga class. I'm not traveling. I'm not in a meeting at school. I haven't stayed back to finish my emails. I'm not having an SLT meeting after school. I don't have an excuse now. I'm at home. <laughs> so that- that's how. That's how. That's Fair the enough. silver lining of the pandemic for me.
0: I, I love your honesty. Um Venita, we've never had royalty on our podcast before. And-, <laughs> and you've got letters after your name that aren't to do with a a master's degree or a doctorate. Tell us how you uh, received your order of the British empire, Better knows know it oh, uh, OBE.
2: It's a very, it's a, do I have a minute or two to tell you the yes, story? Yes, of
0: course you have yes. as long as you like.
2: So I was uh, holidaying with my, ch- my, my children live in Canada and I was with them in Canada and I received an email, uh, you know, fco.gov.uk and uh, said that you've been nominated and fill up this, these two forms and send them to us. And I said, Who's this person from the high commission? I know everybody, I don't recognize this name. So I I said, oh, this is one of those, you know, frauds. It, it, it it's, it's a spam email. It's, it's I mean, me, OBE? I mean, I never applied, I never did anything. So I, I didn't respond. I didn't respond.
0: You just ignored so that, the OBE email. No, because I, <laughs> I've I done didn't
2: that think voice. it was real. I've done that. <laughs> I didn't think it was real. I didn't think, I said, why would anybody give me an OBE, right? And then about a week later, I was sitting in the balcony with my daughter sipping my wine. And I, I went back to that email. It popped up again. And so I said to my son, I said, I'm just because he's, he's a, all these young kids are all tech wizards, right? So I said, can you just see if this mail is genuine? So he went and he said, Mom, it's a genuine email. Then I hadn't even seen the attachment. There was an attachment from the then High Commissioner, Sir James Bevan. And I recognized his signature. And I said, you mean this could be? Real? So you have to fill up two forms, right? That you have to say that if you're given it, you'll accept it. And then there is another form which has more details. So I said, you know, I said, but Sir James would write to me, right? He knows me, who's this person? I don't know this email in the high commission. Anyway, so I said, okay, but this is authentic. So I filled in that form and forgot about it. Because my understanding was who in London knows of my work? Who is going to give me an OB? I mean, this is not going to happen. And then about five months later, I was sitting at a coffee shop with a friend and nobody said a word to me in these five months. Nobody. Nobody has written an email. Nobody has said a word. And I see this personal email now from Sir James Wevin saying, I'm delighted that you that you that you know, OB has been conferred upon you. And I just went, I jumped up in that restaurant, spilled my coffee over my friend's lovely dress. <laughs> and she said, saying, she's saying, what is this? I said, I can't believe this. I said, she said, show it to me, show it to me, show me what it is. And imagine, imagine. So what do you, what is it the first thing you want to do when you get something that's out of the world like this? You want to tell your family, right? My yeah. husband's on a flight from Paris to Toronto. He's unreachable. <laughs> my foolish children who are 10 hours behind, are sleeping, right? <laughs> and I'm saying, and because they said you can't announce it yet, uh, you know, we have the high commission has to announce it, so I can't tell other than your family. So I said, Okay, ring up my sister. And I ring her up. She said, Yeah, good, you called. I was selecting a sofa for my living room. Can I just show you the picture? <laughs> <laughs> saying, Somebody take this seriously. <laughs> Somebody take this seriously. But the rest that followed, I mean, it was a huge honor for the school a huge recognition, and there was this grand reception that the High Commissioner hosted at the High Commission. My aunt flew down from Edinburgh, everybody, my closest friends, colleagues, alumni, were all there at this reception. It was lovely, it was lovely. And I got to thank my husband, never again, never after.
0: <laughs> You're showing a, really lot of hum- a lot of humility there to, to say it was good for the school and to thank your husband, but.
2: Absolutely, you know. see, there is no one woman uh, there is no one woman or one man army, guys. Leadership is collaborative. And that's what I say to kids as well. I said, when you graduate and when you achieve something, don't think it's yours because a lot of people have played a visible or invisible role in your journey.
0: Do you ever, do yeah. you ever take a moment though to, to, to appreciate that you know maybe you have done well and, and when you sat sipping your wine with you, with your kids to, to just have that reflective minute and think yeah i'm i'm pleased with that i'm i'm happy
2: i was i was over the moon yeah i was over the moon and uh, i won't tell you what happened at the reception and the after party but uh, <laughs> I, I was over the moon i was i was delirious with joy i was delirious with joy because it was an affirmation that i had not sought it was a validation i had in my wildest dreams never thought would come my way and um, it was an absolute abs- I think I think it was a huge huge high point and one I don't think I've beaten that yet but yes it'll it
0: was take, it'll take some beating well done to you vanita we're um we <laughs> we're gonna ask you a few quick fire questions now yeah um, sure. the first one is what what book are you reading at the moment and uh, is it any good would you recommend it
2: Yes, I would. It is. Um, it is by Jules Bremer. It's thirty-nine weeks. It's. Will, let me see. I think it's the book. Yeah, life behind the school gates. Okay. It is incredible. It's authentic. It's hilarious. It's wonderful. Oh, it is. It is amazing, and it is so easy to read. Read it. It's real fun. Super. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, we will. Um, you, you've talked a little, uh, again, about humility, about leaving the shirt in a better place. I want to ask you about legacy. Does, does leaving a legacy matter to you as a person, as a professional, as a, as a director? Of a yes, sport? it
2: does. Yes, it does. In the, in the most, um, it's not in a personal, it's, it's not due to personal vanity that you want to leave a legacy. The legacy should be that excellence is sustained. That is, that's the legacy that people understand that yes, this is what you work for, you strive for, and you don't let it go. You don't let it go. Hang on to that.
0: So your legacy yeah. would be where you've set the bar.
2: Yeah. Yeah, nice. challenge like yourself. That.
1: Yeah. Yeah, lovely, really nice. One of my favorites now, Venito which three leaders in history would you like to go out for a meal with and have a good chat?
2: Ah, well, I'm a history buff, right? So, okay, yeah. my first, my first probably would be Gandhi. Uh, not because of i mean that he's such a tall leader and what he's done but his witticisms his one-liners they were epic they were epic <laughs> and and you see that and you see that you know here is a man who led a freedom struggle and yet there was such a naughtiness a wittiness to him that i really would love to have uh, kind of seen um i would have liked to meet i'd love to go out with john f kennedy not not just because he's handsome to boot but uh, probably after the Bay of Pigs. And actually sit down and do a debrief with him. That, that how, how, did, how did that pan out for you? And maybe after the Cuban crisis was over, that what were the lessons you learned? You know, And I would have loved to do that. And I think the third would have to be Churchill. I am dying to know whether his legendary one-liners were actually pre-rehearsed. I, I wanted to ask him that question. But, uh, I mean, his leadership at such a difficult time, there's just so much to learn. There's, there's, there's so many giants in history, right? But uh, the, these three would be, if I could, I would.
1: <laughs> I, like that. I like that. If I could, I would. And we'll, we'll finish on our on our last one. Our our website is the www.theinfinitelearners.com and all, all our taglines are about learning from experience and What would, what does infinite learning mean to you? What do you reckon?
2: I think it's the understanding that you are not the reservoir of knowledge. Knowledge is different from wisdom and it's not just important to be knowledgeable, it's important to be wise. And wisdom comes from reflecting on your experiences, using and applying the knowledge you've learned. And it has to be it has to be for good, for the good of others. It cannot be for your self-preservation. So yeah. I think that that's what infinite learning would mean to me.
0: Wow, thank you, Vanita. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. I've thoroughly enjoyed that. And, and I had a good laugh along with some incredible messages and some wisdom that you've dropped in there yourself throughout, so thank you very much for your thank time. You.
2: Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so very much, Alan and Louis. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank
0: you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Guys, guys, search Infinite Leaders Live on YouTube and IGTV. Um, We're also on all podcast platforms and at theinfinitelearners.com. Thanks a lot for watching and listening, whatever platform you're on. Please remember to leave us a review and and press subscribe. It really helps us to get our message out there. And we'll see you next time. Thanks again, Vanita. Thank
2: you. Thank you very much. Thank
0: you. right.